warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. It's the Real Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of profession. Scott here, as usual, with me on Skype. It was almost Zoom. Hello, Stephen. Hello, mate. Yes. Um, technology um, wasn't kind to us when we first tried to record this. But, um, we tried. Here we are, uh, yeah. um, you lucky, lucky listeners. Well, we've been away from recording for about six or seven weeks. Not that the listener would would realise because the you know the show's been going out pretty regular every week but partly because of that backlog that we'd accumulated and it looks like we've nearly caught up um, I'm thinking that this episode that we're recording on a Sunday will probably go out in about 10 days time well that's good because I mean you needed to, to make some space didn't you there was too many just, just piling up behind me and the conversations that were going out mate weren't relevant in, in the current environment. I mean, for example, Carry On Constable, which went out last week, was recorded Easter weekend. Mm. And we are now in the middle of June. So <laughs> what we're going to find, we, we've sort of sat down, didn't we, mate, and worked out a little bit of a schedule of recording coming up over the next two months or so. And yes. if, if anything, we may have to go to 10-day releases rather than weekly because of other things that we've got going on. So it's going to even itself out. I think, didn't you? Absolutely, yeah. And we've been very conscious of the fact that um, you know we want to give you the, the time critical um, space to be able to get um, your stint on the um, Talking Pictures TV podcast. Um, in yeah, that to consider, um, yeah, yeah, because that that you know that is important. That is time critical, and that does require a lot more work than you would think. Um, you know, it's not just sort of doing a little link between two other people's um reviews you you've got more to more to do with it so um absolutely we need to make sure that we give you enough room to breathe really thank you um, very much so um <laughs> and at your age so um <laughs> that was the bit i was waiting for thank yeah, you um <laughs> ventilators in short supply at the moment that um so so absolutely it's, it's making it more comfortable for you and i think you know subconsciously as well you having 17 episodes waiting to be edited on your hard drive <laughs> yeah, um, isn't maybe the best of, of things to to be you know looking at it was daunting you know across three mm. or four podcasts that i do now they were just, oh. yeah just keeps me keeps me off the streets as you know um, <laughs> one of the things we, we promised we weren't going to talk about is the weather because that seems to come up all the time we're not going to talk about lockdown because we've spoken at length about this. Podcasts are talking about it. But people know what's going on. They're living it. They're experiencing lockdown. But the thing I want to just sort of touch on before we start our review today is that having a little bit more time at the moment, what I've been doing is sort of catching up on, you know, podcasts old and new. 
some you know, some old favourites, some great ones that we've both been fans of since you know year one since they first started. But what I want to do, mate? Can I just give a shout out? Oh God, I sound like Steve right in the afternoon there. Can I just give a shout out to a relatively new one out there? Okay, and I'm sure this will this will be of interest to you as well as a lot of our listeners. All right. Okay, I came across these guys. Funny enough, as contributors to the official Talking Pictures TV podcast a little while back. And I want to say hi to Matt and to Gavin and to direct you and the listeners towards their show, which is called Britpop Movies of a Certain Age. Yes, I heard them on a recent episode of the Talking Pictures TV podcast doing um, their double act review. That's it. And um, yes, it did. I did uh, make a mental note. I couldn't write down a physical note at the time, but uh, I made a mental note to actually go and and, and sort of have a look uh, because I was intrigued, certainly. Well, I've had a listen now. Matt and Gavin are both musicians. They're massive fans of those movies from, say, the late 50s to the mid 70s that feature pop acts, pop stars of the period, films that were designed to be a vehicle for people like, say, Tommy Steele, Cliff Richard, uh, Dave Clark Five, Catches If You Can, I think, would be one that they would probably cover. You know, the sort of movie, the genre that I mean here, yeah. And for us, personally, on Real Britannia, I think the only one in that genre that we would have covered would have been Three Hats for Lisa, I think, with Joe Brown. Poss- yes. Possibly that'll be the day, David Essex. I'm wondering. You're going to say that'll be the day would be the other one. Yeah. So um, we've not covered too many in nearly 80 episodes. Now, so far at the time of this recording, the boys have covered the young ones with Cliff Six Five Special, which has got absolutely everybody in it. Band of Thieves, Dateline Diamonds. They've done three or four episodes now. Marvellous references to a lot of stuff that we've covered or we will be covering in the future. You know, they they, they talk about carry-on movies. Just before we turned on the microphone about Doctor Who, there's a lot of Doctor Who references in there, mate. Um, Freddie Mills got brought up recently. Now, he got a mention in Carry On Constable, our episode on that movie. Freddie Mills, do you remember... He was the boxer that was the suspect in the 1960s Ripper case that I covered on Rainbow Valley a few yeah, months. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Freddie Mills. Magnificent Rainbow Valley, yeah. Thank you very much, yeah. yes. Um, he was a sus. He was a boxer. He was light heavyweight British champion, I think, at the time in the 50s. Went on to have a fairly successful TV presenting career and appeared in at least two carry-ons and a couple of other movies. Um, and they mentioned him as well, you know. So there's quite a few little bits of info that are in common with our two yeah. shows so basically That's good yeah, yeah. it's interesting i mean weirdly enough I, I watched the dangerous years last night with um frankie vaughn in it so oh excellent um, i haven't seen that first first time i've ever yeah. seen it now yeah um so which they probably are well aware of um it does sound, sound like you know sound like the the intriguing and i'm gonna Take Del. a listen. There's only yeah. sort of three or four episodes at the moment. If you like movies featuring, you know, I don't know, Adam Faith, Billy Fury, Anthony Newley should probably fall in there as well. You know, Matt and Gavin have got it covered. I can't recommend it enough. Britpop movies of a certain age. Yeah. And, and, and lads, if you're listening, which I think you may be, we'd love to have you as guests on the show. Yeah, I'm thinking crossover. Cool. Yeah. Well, I've got a list of movies that sit perfectly. I bet you have. And do you know what? Well, you're king of the lists at the moment, mate. I bet there's a few on your list that would cross over. Mm, a bit possible. Yeah. 
I've got one in mind in particular, but there's two or three at the back of my brain. Let's get together, guys. I'd love for you to be guests on our show at some point very soon. Now then, today's episode. This has been in the pipeline, I'd say, for over a year because it's part of our continuing examination of the movies that led up to the Kitchen Sink era, yeah? Yeah. Uh, the Angry Young Man films, you know. And, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that we might have selected it for topical reasons, bearing in mind what's going on at the moment, but it's sheer coincidence that Sapphire from 1959 is, is being recorded today. Uh, and as we move forward with our thoughts on the film, for those that haven't seen it, uh, the plot of the movie, it'll all become very clear. You've been looking forward to this one a while, haven't you? I have, yeah. It's, um, I think that just the quality of it is outstanding, really. Um, just to, you know, give away my final um, review of it when I, <laughs> I give. Um, but it, it, it does. It's got... It's got um, a great combination of elements in it that what it, it's got a kind of message in it, or at least a, um, it's portraying some kind of social issue. But without that being a hammer in your face, it's it, that's kind of in tandem Ooh, yes. with it being a, just a, a great crime investigation yeah. um, and procedural. The, the two together are, are done in such harmony um, and with such an interesting take on it quality i think that this is why this stands out from maybe a couple of other things that may have been done in a similar vein um so yeah absolutely i've been looking forward to us being able to dip into this for for a while really yeah um and it's one that i think isn't as well known as it deserves to be to be fair there's a few people out there that whose interest was piqued when i've been pushing it on facebook and twitter over the past week or two it's like I saw that on Talking Pictures TV last week. Can't wait to hear the episode. You know, it's, it's getting a bit of an audience out there, which is really well deserved. We've got a lot to talk about on this one. There's so much to cover that I don't want to miss anything too much. So without further ado, here's another one of those little documentaries that we've put together, picking up the story of the British New Wave movies from where we left off, which I think was Violent Playground, wasn't it, before? It was our last one. Yes, it was the must last one. Must have been, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, Violent Playground leading into the reteaming of the legendary Basil Dearden, Michael Ralph and Earl Cameron. It's Sapphire from 1959. We'll be back after this. 1959, and it's at this point in our story where we're first introduced to two Angry Young Man movies, Look Back in Anger and Room at the Top. But it's probably worth discussing three final films also released in this year before running headlong into the world of the British New Wave cinema. Tiger Bay, We Are the Lambeth Boys and Sapphire. A typical British crime drama from the 50s, one of the last great documentaries of the decade, and a drama that drags the viewing audience into a London filled with racial tension, bigotry and murder. First up, Tiger Bay, the movie that made a star of young Hayley Mills and got her noticed by Walt Disney leading to her being offered a contract with his studios. Filmed on location, it also starred Horst Buchholz later to find greater fame as one of the Magnificent Seven, playing the part of a Polish sailor. While stocked in Cardiff, he jealously murders his ex-girlfriend, played here by Yvonne Mitchell. The killing is witnessed by Jilly, played by Hayley Mills, 
a lonely 12-year-old whose only interest in the crime is the abandoned gun. She picks up the weapon with the intention of impressing the other kids at school, but succeeds only in attracting the attention of a local police inspector played here by Hayley Mills' real-life father, John Mills. The story develops as Jilly, already a very experienced liar, starts to fabricate entire aspects of the crime, driving the inspector mad. I've included this movie in the lead-up to the kitchen sink dramas, not because it's necessarily realistic, but it's more romantic or dramatic. But it was way ahead of its time for portraying aspects of life previously not seen in British movies. This film can be viewed as a transition piece, traditional yet at the same time modern, but not exactly social realism. In this movie, children are portrayed seriously with a staggering performance from the young Hayley Mills, and contemporary issues are dealt with powerfully, most notably sexual equality. Here's Yvonne Mitchell just before her murder. Yeah, I, I'm sorry I'm away so long. It's the ships. I, I don't write so good yet. You know I don't write. But you got the money, didn't you? Came regular, didn't it? Regular? Oh, yes. Regular like you pay a cook. I'm glad you are so grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you! Is that grateful enough? Just because you helped me once, is that a life sentence? I'm not an animal for a little boy to keep in a cage. I'm a woman. A woman with a heart and a body which is my own to give how I like when I like. I'd rather be back in that bloody camp than have this year again. This waiting, waiting, never knowing. Anetchka, I'm, I'm finished with the scene. I tell you, really, I, it's, it's all over. I never go back to the sea. I'm, I'm staying here with you now. I promise you. It's weird. We're going to get married. Married, you hear? Married. Married would be terrible. Worse. Plenty of love for a few days, all happy, smiling. Then you'd see a ship. You can't help it. It's a madness. The sea gets in here. You've got a man, haven't you? You've got another one, haven't you? Haven't you? Yes! Who is it? Who is it? You tell me, you tell me! Not a sailor, I tell you that, not a dirty sailor. He's a wonderful man, wonderful. He's a gentleman. A gentleman. <laughs> You bitch! You bitch, bitch! Bitch! Yes, bitch! That's exactly it. Well, your little bitch has had enough of crawling on her stomach, crawling when you whistle, crawling up if she ever outsanished You call it love, I call it something else. I've watched you. You're thinking only one thing. What a wonderful, strong man is Bronislaw Koschinski. Little sailor boy shouldn't have women to play with. Better go out and sleep with the sea. Now get out, get out, 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 get out! The film is beautifully shot in glorious black and white. It depicts Cardiff docks and its surrounding areas as a thing of beauty, 
just like A Taste of Honey a few years later, which portrays the crumbling northern industrial background magnificently. final documentary up for discussion before the onset of the kitchen sink drama era is We Are the Lambeth Boys. Filmed in the summer of 1958, it was part of the famous Look at Britain series of movies and was sponsored by the Ford Company. Although a documentary, it features a soundtrack by Johnny Dankworth and his orchestra. Focusing on the Orford House Youth Club in Kennington, South London, stories unfold of the lives of the young lads that attend there. We witness dance nights and discussion groups, as well as life outside the club, such as hanging about on the Kennington Lane estate, the local chip shop, or working in the town's postal sorting office. Filmed in a completely naturalistic way, we meet characters who actually behave normally, as if they're not being filmed at all. Eagle-eared viewers may also recognise some of the dialogue, as it was used by Morrissey on his track Spring Hill Gym, part of the 1994 album Vox or In a famous article on the film in Sight and Sound, sociologist Richard Hoggart talked of it as a film essay rather than a documentary, because as he claimed, it sets out to show not the whole truth, but some aspects of the truth wholly. From that perspective, the film succeeded in embodying the strength and variety of these young people's vitality, their lively, tolerant and complex sense of community. If a new style comes out, a boy immediately, if he thinks it's a good suit, wants to go and get one, doesn't he? And of course, if someone else likes it, they go and get one. Now, out of a bloke's money, how much do you think of in terms of buying clothes? I, I spend nearly 30 bob a week on clothes. Do you? Yeah. Um, out my way. You mean you save up 30 bob a week? Or yeah. You buy, I see. No, I put 30 bob on when I got enough, I buy. And what do you consider suit? a good price for a suit? About 15 guineas. You do. For that, you expect something pretty. I want a good suit. You want a good thing. And how long do you expect that to last you? Well, about eight months to a year. Well, no, after eight months to a year, it doesn't look smart anymore, so you've got to buy a new one. If you buy a suit, you buy a good one, it'll last you. But if you buy a cheap suit, you don't expect it to last. So, you turn around and said if you buy a good suit, it should last you. If it makes a good suit, it must be a good suit for 15 guineas, mustn't it? You can't... I'll do leave off, you don't know what you're talking about. It's an honest and sympathetic look at London's teenagers which challenged the media's perception at the time of Teddy Boys. One of the last movies to appear under the free cinema banner, it's a realistic representation of working class people. Something that was lacking to a certain degree in contemporary British cinema. Lacking that was until the release of a certain movie starring Richard Burton later that year. But before we finally get to look back in anger, it's worth bringing in here another movie from the previously mentioned Basil Dearden. A crime movie that focused on racism once again, this time in North London. Racism towards West Indian migrants. The movie's plot was described as exploring the underlying insecurities and fears of ordinary people that exist towards another race. A challenging and thought-provoking piece at the time, Sapphire starred Nigel Patrick, Earl Cameron and Yvonne Mitchell. 
and how's this for a progressive storyline? The body of a young woman named Sapphire is found stabbed on Hampstead Heath. Police originally assume that she's white, but when her brother, played here superbly by Earl Cameron, the black Bermudan-born actor, when he appears at the police station to give evidence, a whole tangled plot starts to unravel. Sapphire's brother confirms that they were the children of a white father and a black mother. Sapphire, prior to her death, was passing herself off as white, and her white boyfriend soon becomes the chief suspect. The film deftly portrays the ethnic tensions of 1950s London in a way that Dearden's Pool of London could only scratch the surface of eight years earlier. An astonishing piece of work filmed not just before the start of the more permissive 60s, but also just after the Notting Hill race riots of the year before. She'd never been in here. Oh, you can always tell. Because once they hear the beat of the bongo. Sapphire, released in the UK the 21st of April 1959. Directed, as we said, by Basil Dearden. Now, Stephen, I'll be asking you later where Mr. Dearden sits in the Village Hall of Fame. And, of course, if a movie is directed by Basil Dearden, you can guarantee most of the time that Michael Relf will be the producer. And indeed he is. Before I give the synopsis, we were chatting yesterday about this double act, mate. It's, it's 
quite phenomenal when you don't realise, isn't it, these two? Absolutely, yeah. And Basil Dillon is, is you know, maybe a bit more well known for his part in it. Mm. But certainly um, all the way through, you've got the fact that the um, there were a double act and that's why it, Ralph really um, didn't continue to do much after, after Basil did and had sadly yeah. um, died early. Didn't you say he um, only made three or four movies after after Basil did and passed yeah, there away? Yeah, I think it was, it, yeah, it was two or three. Um, um, that's as far as, as Michael Ralph, Ralph went and they were quite well-spaced as well apart, mm. whether it was just because his creative partner wasn't, you know, wasn't around anymore or whether yeah. it was just because he got to that stage in life, I don't know. But certainly the success of their partnership and where they, they sit within our own um, our own watches. But mm-hmm. if you look through the list, there's, there's any number of films on there that are, are worthy of a watch, um, notwithstanding the ones that we have reviewed. Well, every one that we uh, have reviewed that, that Basil Dearden's directed, Michael Ralph has produced. Am I right? I think you said that to me yesterday, didn't you? Though? Yeah, it's- I mean, it's, I think there's... I think there's maybe one, apart from the ones that after my after Basil Dayton died, mm. I think while they were both alive, there's maybe only two films in each of their filmographies that they didn't do together. The rest mm. of them, the 90-odd the percent of their films they did together. And it was a successful partnership as far as I'm concerned oh, with the yeah. my, my appreciation of their films that they they did together. So um, it's absolutely right to be to be recognising, and you know we've done five of them ourselves, and, mm-hmm. and um, during this um, podcast, really. Yeah. So we're no slight fans of the pairing. <laughs> yes, um, step aside, we, we... Powell and Pressburger. There's two new sheriffs in town. By the well, this is it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're with regards to directors and and things of we don't normally put a lot of our time into looking at the directors and such because. Mm. We're not that type of podcast, no, really. We but certainly, the there are a few that um, that do stand out for for their repeat appearances. And I mean, you know, other than other than Basil Dayden and Michael Ralph, you, you know, next year looking in line is for frequency with us is, is um, Joel Thomas. It really so, will be the carry on once they yeah. you know start snowballing out of control, which they will do soon. He he will probably be top of the tree with regard to directors, unless yeah. we suddenly decide to. Do a David Lean season or something, you know. But well, we've got the the Mike Lee and the um, Ken Loach ones to catch up on at oh, some point. So yeah. they'll they'll eventually, you know, as well get a certain number in there. But I, I never but, thought I'd hear you sort of mention sort of a phrase where Mike Lee and Ken Loach are in competition with the Carry On movies. Well, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I think it would be interesting to see. Um, see them the, the directors switch over and see uh, uh, carry on Daniel Blake or, yeah, carry on or, signing on yeah yeah it'll be uh, interesting um, take on it really um, and I might you know if I ever get to speak to him again now I'll, I'll mention that to, oh to name Timberch. dropper you, you name so it's um, <laughs> time I'm driving into the station yeah yeah but um going back to uh, Basil Dayden and, and Michael Ralph I mean they're, they're filmographies have any number of films and as you said originally when we first started doing the the kitchen sink social realism new wave whatever terms have been applied mm-hmm. to the films um certainly he um although there was other directors that came in and, and was producing uh, uh, you know quality films subsequently he was really at the forefront of 
of establishing this as a as a genre, really. Yeah, I think we'll um, find a shift and coming credit up. to him for it. Mm. I think we'll find a shift coming up with people like Lindsay Anderson, you know, and the John Osborne influences and stuff as we hit the next sort of few episodes. But certainly in the build up to 1959, he was head and shoulders above everybody else with regard to the social problem movie, which is what we've sort of discussed over the last sort of two or three in this season, haven't we? Like Violent Playground and Pool of London, um, all of those sort of things, the social problem era. Uh, Basil Dearden was there at the forefront, certainly. But with this one, with Sapphire, the movie stars Earl Cameron, Nigel Patrick, Yvonne Mitchell, Michael Craig and Bernard Miles. And again, I'm going to have to refer to you a little bit later on, because if you look at the cast list on IMDb, there's about 20 or more actors and actresses that are listed as uncredited. And again, I've got no doubt that many of them will probably be knocking on the door at the Village Hall of Fame when we come to yeah okay let me give you the synopsis for those that don't know a beautiful female college student is found dead in a public park the police soon discover that a murder may have been racially motivated basil dearden's bold direct police procedural starring nigel patrick as the detective in charge of the investigation is a devastating look at the way bigotry crosses class divides and a snapshot of the increasingly interracial culture of england in the late 50s I've seen it about two or three times. I thought I was quite familiar with it, but, mate, watching it yesterday, the day before, uh, and bearing in mind this is over 60 years old now, this film, it still shook me for several different reasons. And I know this is a particular favourite of yours, and you have been waiting patiently, you know, to, to talk about this for several months now. But before we launch headlong into it, and, and I'm dare I sort of describe it as this classic British movie, because I think it certainly deserves the epithet there, that what is it about this that you love, mate? Why is it something you've been anticipating? What's your history with Sapphire? To be honest, it's some it's a film that I only really paid any attention to from about three, four years ago. Mm, same I, I, think, mm. I think I've seen part of it previously then, but not really given it the attention it deserved. Mm. And then from the point at which um, I was actually bought a, a, a box set of film noir and, and um, kitchen sink dramas um, mm. by my friend mm. um, one Christmas, and it was in amongst those. Oh, and, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it stood out from the rest of them, because the rest of them were really more film noir, but this this British film noir, yeah. and this was, was in it. Um, so watching it, then whether it was because I'd, I'd actually was paying proper attention to it because it was watching it on DVD rather than just being something you picked up via streaming or whatever. But it, it did just impact me with the the combined qualities of the fact that, that there was a message in there that was not hammered into your face, but it was essentially a, a, a police procedural which combined these elements that had some comment in there, but it wasn't actually portraying everybody that was on one side of the coin as being evil and the other side, you know, but it kept you guessing all the way through, but it didn't actually, didn't didn't leave you with any flat moments either. I mean, it's, you know, every scene oh, in yeah. it has something in it. And mm. I mean, I've referenced before about how going to sound unusual to be comparing this to Back to the Future, but, um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Back to the Future is a film that I that I highly praise because you go through that and and every scene and virtually every bit of dialogue mm-hmm. in it has a purpose for being there, but yes. doesn't feel like it's that they're missing anything out. Mm-hmm. It feels all completely natural. Yeah. And this has got a similar element to it that that every little bit in it is there for a reason. There's not really any fluff in it. But it doesn't. Mm. But it doesn't feel like it's been condensed. It doesn't feel like the it's been edited down no, in any way. No, it just minutes. feels like yeah. it's yeah, mm. and it does. It just and it rattles through, and it doesn't leave you completely breathless at the at the end of it, going you know, and not being able to take it all in because you can take every element of it in as it comes through. So it's oh, not too yeah. quick. You you get to the you know, still I get to the end of it and go. Was that only an hour and a half? Yeah, that, you've that, taken in know, so much. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know that that story <laughs> in somebody else's hands would have probably had more fluff in it and probably would have taken would have been less concisely done as well. So there's there's those elements. I mean, it's very well shot and, and acted as well for us to get into that element for a while. Without a doubt, there's not a bad performance in it with regards to the acting. As far as I'm concerned, the cinematography. I mean, you you know you've. I know you have a particular thing about the, um, you know, the streets of London. Oh, yes. Um, and, yeah. and this would have been, you know, for, for you would have been absolute gold in that respect yeah, and to be yeah. seeing all those kind of things, which is, mm. I think there is actually this, I seem to remember there was something floating around online about um, somebody had done a, a thing of actually studying the locations where Sapphire was, was filmed yeah. um, in London, um, which I haven't really looked into, um, but you might have done. There's a great but website absolutely. called Real Streets, which I haven't checked out specifically for Sapphire, but I do look at quite often when I recognise somewhere. I think it's mainly North London for those that, that want to know um, where this was filmed. But really and didn't it, check it out this time, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, then, and the, you know, it, it, it is in that immediate post-war era, era where there's still, you know, the bomb sites being cleared up yeah. and there's the slums and, mm-hmm. and particularly with the the different levels of socioeconomic status with the with the, the immigrant communities and the, the sort of working class white communities and, and stuff. And it's it's a thriller though as well. I mean you you're left not just admiring it as a as a film, but you're also left like with the plot just going who did it? And you keep, <laughs> yeah. and, and I, you know, I know we, we both, both recognize in it virtually, you know, it's continually every couple of scenes mm-hmm. you get in, um, after it's set itself up as far as the, um, the original and the premise of what's happened, you then, as new characters are introduced into it and the police are basically following their lines of inquiry, if everybody becomes a, a suspect, it's, it's and, and you're left wondering about, well, is it them? And then yeah. something else comes up, and you go, "Well, no, it isn't them. It must be them instead." And then, and but not done in a way that's um, that's forced either. It's just that you, you know you you're having the natural suspicions, and you haven't you know ruled anybody else out. It's just that you realise that there's quite a few people that that could have potentially done it, and there's no obviousness about who who it was. Um, and in actual fact, you know you you do you get left guessing right until the end, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it sets so many p- potentials up, all completely believable as well, that they were potential suspects. So it's just got so many great quality elements together where it mixes. And obviously the, the social issue side is something that appeals to me. Um, as you know, that's something that, it, that is part of me. But this isn't one that 
is in any way forced. It doesn't doesn't have what some people are more critical of some of um sort of ken loach's stuff that are a bit more overtly pushing a social angle this has got a definite message to it but not in a way that is actually the primary message with it all it, it really is in a lot of ways a, a, just a crime drama that happens to be with the background of, of the race element yeah well let's put this into a little bit of context um totally agree with everything you said there by the way i mean we spoke yesterday about this almost being like an agatha christie novel where as you get to know a character that seed of doubt is put in your brain as to did they or didn't they and that's that works really well and with regard to the back to the future reference um you're quite right there as well which is why we've sort of decided that when we sort of talk about this in depth in a little while, we've got the BFI's actual storyline on from their website. And we're going to sort of use that as a reference point because every scene, there is something notable that we need to chat about, I think, but we're going to try and avoid the spoiler by, you know, we'll, we'll cut that review off a couple of paragraphs before the end, if we can do that without revealing the reveal, because even at the end, you're, you're still guessing two two seconds before the reveal. You really don't know what's going on. But putting into context before we go into that side of things, mate, it's 1959, right? So we're one year away from Peeping Tom and Psycho with regard to like what's going on in the world cinematically. And apart from it being one of those social problem movies that led up to the kitchen sink stuff, it's also a good indication of the direction that cinema was being sort of permitted to head towards at this point. We're two years away from Lady Chatterley, the permissive society. It's a very adult film, I think, exploring very adult themes. But at the same time, I don't think it's the intention of Dearden and Ralph to be controversial. You know, knowing their past track record, we're aware that they're the masters of the social problem movie. They portray the issues of the time on screen with a total respect for the audience and treating the the audience as adults, as I say. Dearden's sort of saying there, look, this is going on right now under your noses, okay? And I'm going to present it to you because I think you're sensible enough and mature enough to deal with this. And some of it would have been quite shocking, but it was social realism it was very realistic as to what was going on in the time 1959 right this was released in the spring of that year march april the autumn before it was the notting hill race riots okay so absolutely very, yeah with yeah. the yeah yeah, yeah. very topical it wasn't just notting hill there was also little outbursts and, and you know other things going all around the country so leading up to this movie there'd been a I don't know, a building sense of unrest, violent attacks against mainly the West Indian community, but it wasn't just, you know, limited to, to the West Indians. Um, sometimes by Teddy Boys, as we'll see in this movie, but mate, it was also, as, as you're fully aware, the era of Oswald Mosley, the union movement, yeah. the, the White Defence League, and all of this lot that we hadn't experienced before. So what I was thinking, you know, we, we've got this in the background while we're reviewing the film, but we'll probably go into this this dark period of British history in a future episode because thinking about it, mate, we've lined up absolute beginners to review with Mark for a future episode, which takes we place have, literally yeah. right in the middle of the Notting Hill race riots. Absolutely, that's that's set back slap bang in that incident. Yeah, um, and certainly that would be you know be something to, interesting when we're talking 
about that film mm. will be able to to actually f- provide some commentary based upon you know the content of of this film. It's it's quite it'd be quite interesting as well um, for us to to have that crossover yeah. between the two with our perspectives certainly. Two completely different genre of movie as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, as we've said, like. like incredibly sort of like topical hot potato of a movie at the time combined with as you said an excellent murder mystery police procedural as well so as we said it's one of those rare occasions that we'd like to go through the plot in a little more detail than usual because there's so much going on i don't want to overlook anything but at the same time we will avoid avoid the spoilers um, because there is the obvious commentary on social issues as well as the old, you know, police bits going on in the background. So what we're going to do, we are going to refer to the BFI's website, flesh it out a bit, but keep our dear listener guessing as to who the murderer actually is, if we can. Okay. So, according to the BFI's plotline, let's just start with that first paragraph, Stephen. It's, 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 This is what I'll probably do. We'll read out a paragraph at a time and just comment on it and then we'll just see how this flows, Okay, Hampstead Heath, London. A dead body is discovered in the undergrowth. The victim, a young white girl, was stabbed several times in a frenzied attack. The only clue is a handkerchief monogrammed with the initial S. Given the lack of blood at the scene, Superintendent Robert Hazard speculates to his colleague, Inspector Phil Leroy, that she must have been killed elsewhere and her body dumped on the heath. Right. From the start, bang, first line of the credits come up on the screen. You see a dead body being thrown, bang, fills the whole screen onto the floor, blood coming out of her mouth, horrifying close-up. Basil Dearden has grabbed your attention in the first two seconds. Yes. I mean, that that just sets it out straight away that, you know, you, you're in, interested in the murder of this girl. That's where you're starting off on, on you know, it's, it's not scene-setting, Yep. This is this is you know it, it this is dumped at your feet. Pretty as a much. Body. Pretty and, much. And that that is the issue. How did she come to be there? Who was that person dumping it? That's you know imme- the immediate concern with it. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, just grabbing you you by the throat to get your attention, yeah. and um, it does it. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now the dead body who we find out is is the the titular character Sapphire. We'll come on to her in just a second. I just want to point out something mate she was played by an actress named Yvonne Buckingham and I thought watching it this time all right bless her we only see her as a corpse and in black and white photos right but me being the eagle-eyed you know British movie watcher I thought I know that face right now listeners to the sister podcast that we do here Rainbow Valley the one about the 1960s I've already mentioned it you've already mentioned it It tells the hits and headlines from the 1960s you're going to recall an episode I did covering the Profumo affair, which I'm sure you've listened to, mate. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much immediately after the whole events in 62, 63, surrounding Profumo and all those guys, a movie was rapidly released to cash in on it. Bit of exploitation. It was called The Christine Keeler Story. And Yvonne Buckingham played Christine Keeler. Rec- that's where I recognised her from. Okay. So... Following on from this, and I've only just done this this morning, I thought I'd check on uh, Miss Buckingham's IMDb filmography, and I must say, it is possibly the most unfortunate or unflattering filmographies I've seen. Right, Take a listen to some of her credited screen roles, mate, right? Now, bearing in mind, Victor Harrington, King of, King of the Village Hall of Fame, okay, 
always gets credited as what? Man in bar, man reading newspaper. Yeah. Uh, man in audience, man in crowd, things like that. I'm not going to read out the titles of the movies she appeared in, just the titles, the, you know, the, the characters she played. Ready? Saloon Girl, uncredited. Whore, uncredited. Serving Wench, uncredited. <laughs> Mario's Girlfriend, Girl, Sapphire, Woman, Waitress, uncredited. Gloria, Gwen, Mina, Pretty Girl at the Taboo Club. Various roles in The Benny Hill Show in 1961. Barmaid, uncredited. Didn't really have a spectacular acting career. But it's, it's quite notable. That, that I haven't read out the titles of the movies that some of these refer to. But do you know what? She may appear in the Hall of Fame based on those roles. Because <laughs> there's a couple of movies that we may be covering. Well, that's good. I mean, always good to have another Yorkshire girl in the <laughs> Hall of Fame. I'm not sure. I've, I've, I've actually looked into this to try and find out. And I haven't oh, managed brilliant. to uncover whereabouts in Yorkshire she's yeah. from. But just say she's from... From Yorkshire. Still alive so, as well, I think, according to IMDb. She was born in 37. There's no, no indication that she's passed away. She's definitely going to crop up in Room at the Top. She's She's got an uncredited role in Room at the Top. This is it. So <laughs> she'll be one of those people who, who are in the background yeah. that we've... Um, Usual. I've rocked up 13 appearances um, <laughs> and that we you know, discover a part way through and go, blimey, I don't even know what they look like. Hasn't but, even said a uh, word. Yeah. Yeah, Victor, Victor Harrington, yep. um, Mark II. Yeah. Okay. So we've got some famous faces amongst the coppers, right? You've got Nigel Patrick, who, if the word dependable could ever be applied to an actor, certainly applies to Nigel Patrick. We'll be talking about him as we, we carry on with the plot. But did you know she's got Richard Vernon as the doctor, the pathologist? He's quite a famous face. And Desmond Llewellyn right, yeah. was the constable there at the murder scene. And I'm going to try and grab some of the dialogue at this point and play it for the you know the listeners that may not have seen this movie. Was it me? I don't know. You're going to have to cast your mind back, mate. He sounds absolutely nothing like Desmond Llewellyn. It's almost as if he's dubbed. Oh, he's putting on an accent. I don't think it's dubbed, but he's putting on an accent. I think he's trying to was he being trying to sound like a, a, co- a cockney copper <laughs> rather than his more received pronunciation yeah. that you're used to in the Bond films. I'll tell you what, so, I'll, play it, I'll play it now for the listeners yeah. and see, let them make up their own mind. We've searched the area, sir, but found nothing. There you go, that's Desmond Llewellyn playing somebody other than Desmond Llewellyn for the first time in his career. I, I bet he's somewhere near that blooming Hall of Fame. He's probably already in it. We'll talk about that in a uh, minute. Yeah, <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll mention him. Yeah. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to... Also, at this point, I'm going to take back some previous comments I made about Michael Craig. I think I cast some doubt over his acting ability in Yield to the Night, and I think I was wrong. Well, either I was wrong or he's totally redeemed himself in this movie and proved that he can actually act. Uh, I quite like Michael Craig in this. I like all the cast. There's not a bad performance on anybody's part in this at all. Even the people who are playing the sort of bit parts and supporting roles, they do the job exactly as, as they needed to do. And uh, although there are some that are ever so slightly sort of caricature in a way, yeah, that you can see where that's coming from and then that's actually befitting and that's them as you know as the characters would have been rather than it being the actor hamming it up exactly um, exactly and, yeah and the direction of of the actors is superb on on that to get it actually pitch perfect with regards to, to that and whether he advised 
uh, Desmond Llewellyn to to affect an accent uh, <laughs> or not is is um, something we'll never know. But certainly that's who that's who it is um, directing the, the the police inspector towards the the body of poor Sapphire. Yeah, um, we've we'll been stabbed back. a number of times, so he you know he deduces quite quickly that it wasn't a heat at the moment thing. Somebody has done it for some other motivation. Yeah, so, there's there's yeah. a point, isn't there? I think. Not, not long after the discovery of the body, I think we're back at the police station. And or it might even be where Richard Vernon, the doctor, says, I don't think it was a frenzied attack because if it was a frightened boy, that was it. It was a, you know, the murderer was a frightened so, young lad. Yeah. And he said, well, in my experience, he would have stabbed her once or twice and fled the scene, whatever. But this is, you know, this is a brutal, brutal killing. And the key it's element. Hit, yeah. yeah. And the key element also to this as well is that the killing took place away from Hampstead Heath and the body was dumped there. They, they ascertained that almost immediately. And the doctor, Richard Verdon, pretty much comes up straight away with a time frame for when this happened. I think there's a three-hour window, he says, between sort of, you know, 8 and 11 or whatever it may be. And this is crucial to the whole plot of the story is this timeline of when the murder takes place. Because, like we said, like an Agatha Christie murder, you know, as you try and find the motives out of all potential suspects uh you start picking holes in them and then they start lying or you know people start contradicting what they're saying so vital evidence is revealed within the first two minutes now continuing with the plot according to bfi the victim turns out to be a music student named sapphire the police search for her murderer begins with her boyfriend david harris a gifted architecture student and the recent beneficiary of a scholarship to a european university but Harris claims he was in Cambridge on the day in question and did not return until 11pm. Nevertheless, Superintendent Hazard feels that he is concealing something. It's our first suspect. It's Paul Massey. And do you know what? After watching this and watching The Rebel, the Tony Hancock movie recently, makes me wonder why he wasn't a bigger star, mate, because he is absolutely fantastic in this. Absolutely. He's playing, you know, two very different roles. Mm. So it shows he's got range, for want of a better yeah. phrase. You know, obviously uh, having the good looks as well. Mm. Although in this he's playing a bit more of a, of a nerdy type nerdy character. Nerdy student, yeah. Um, so, the, the, yeah, the question of why, whether it was some poor choice of roles or whether it was something where, you know, just wrong place, wrong time, or whether it was... Um, some other reason I don't know, but he he certainly had the um, the elements you would have expected to have led him to be a bigger star, um, which as we know historically didn't happen. And no, no. so I can understand why uh, you know just it's a curiosity why he's remained a lesser known figure mm. in cinema. Really, he, he was he wasn't actually British; he was Canadian. I found yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, and. After two appearances on the show, I think it's highly unlikely he's going to get a third when you look at the filmography. I might suggest raising the wind at some point in the future just to get him inducted into the Hall of Fame, which, which incidentally is at a music college, believe it or not. It's, it's quite a funny little um, sort of carry-on type movie with you know James Robinson Justice and Leslie Phillips and Paul Massey's one of the music students. Yeah, might be worth, you know, passing the time and trying to get Paul Massey inducted but there's not a great deal of stuff after this there's a couple of TV things it looks like he may have gone back to Canada because I'm sure I'm sure he died in Canada this was the peak I mean this was 1959 Rebel was 61 and that's it you know he just sort of disappears gradually just fades into the distance which is a shame 
Continuing the plot, an autopsy reveals that Sapphire was three months pregnant. Now, this is where this is where it really happens now, right? When her brother, Dr. Robbins, arrives from Birmingham, the mystery deepens. Dr. Robbins is a black man. It appears that their father was a white doctor and their mother a black dancer. Though the superintendent is courteous, Leroy cannot disguise his revulsion. It appears that the motive for her murder was racism. Okay, so this is where we're going now. The look of surprise on Nigel Patrick's face is absolute quality here when Earl Cameron walks through the door. It, this is well, what... I'd be surprised if Earl Cameron walked through my door as well. I'd be, be delighted. Um, but absolutely, you you see um, his surprise, but you also get, you immediately also get, and this is to, to in a, you know, less than a second long uh, expression, mm-hmm. he conveys surprise yep. but not any um antagonism is it is simple surprise it's not that he ha- holds any uh prejudicial views in that you know respect of, of thinking oh no not a, not a black man it's just like oh he's a black man I think and also he, that, he that, to see, capture that in, in an yeah. expression yeah is wow yeah really i, I, th- I think what they're doing is, is also showing that his brain is suddenly working at a different angle it's like Hang on a minute. Okay, so we now may have a different motive for this murder. We may have a different angle we've got to pursue here because this element has just been thrown at our feet and it's like, wasn't expecting that. It's that sort of reaction. Oh, wasn't expecting that. Okay, where do we go from now? You know, it's that, that, that's how it is. And like you said, Nigel Patrick does it all w- without words over a second, a second yeah. and a half. A bit, bit like Bob Hoskins in the back of the car in The Long Good Friday, all those thoughts yeah. that go through his head. Yeah, yeah. Nigel Patrick conveys 14 different emotions in, in a second and a half. Incredible. And what we're going to find out as well as, as the story continues, okay, racism is, is the, one of the many themes at the core of this movie, but it's not only racism highlighted by the white community. Later we see the reverse of this and the distrust between both sides. And I'm also wondering if... I sort of of mentioned this to you yesterday when we were talking about the film, if this has ever been depicted as successfully before in a British movie, you know, the fact that there's a successful middle-class black family, a doctor in this case, you know, in well-paid, respected jobs. I'm thinking this is probably the first time the British audiences would have seen this on screen. I certainly can't think of any other that has any prominence. Mm. It may have been um, doing something that has disappeared into the depths of history but certainly this was the first time there was any film of any note that captured the public's eye yeah where that was and and that despite the other um the other revelations in this film and the other spotlight that's put upon different racist attitudes and and things um that bit isn't isn't questioned that's kind of just dropped in there yeah um, there isn't the you know there isn't even um for, you know from uh, michael craig's character of mm. um who is obviously he does display more overt racism yes um particularly when meeting earl cameron mm. um but the uh there's not any element of this where that is like even you know or you know how can be a, a doctor or you know, there isn't even any question of of his standing in in his community where he comes from. 
So, you know, I I think that this shows that they haven't just gone opportunistically yeah. um, to hammer home a message. They've they've selectively put in the different elements they want to pick up on upon when they want to actually represent any questions over over race or racism. Um, and absolutely, I can't think of any other instance where that, that's just been dropped into a film that that is just something that is, rather yeah. than it being something that's that's open to, to question. We might and be I, wrong. In fact, I can't even think with regards to outside British cinema. I can't really Ooh. think there's a lot... We may be wrong. If if anybody could let us know, we might actually do a little bit of digging into this and just find out if this was actually the case that this is the first sort of documented example on screen. But even so, even if it wasn't, it's going to be something that's fairly novel and and fairly revolutionary to to British audiences, certainly in 1959. Continuing with the story, I mean, as the police investigate Sapphire's history, it emerges that she lived a double life. Passing for white in one guise while frequenting some of the shadier nightclubs in black neighbourhoods in another. A torn picture found in her boarding room sparks the hunt for a missing dance partner. Flashy clothes suggest a dubious lifestyle. Now, just going to say, this is one of my favourite parts of the movie about here, mate. I'm going to have to choose my words very carefully. Amongst Sapphire's belongings are some items of, shall we say, exotic underwear. Yes. Uh, the sort that can only be found in certain shops on Shaftesbury Avenue, as, as, as we find out. Um, and Nigel Patrick, in his wisdom, turns to a WPC. Actually, I think she's a sergeant for her opinion, <laughs> for her opinion <laughs> on these items of clothing. Now, let's say that this, uh, this female police sergeant is portrayed here as, shall we say, not quite so feminine. In fact, she's quite stern. Dare I say butch? I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't describe <laughs> her as having the gentle touch. No. Um, she's obviously a lesbian. Obviously a lesbian. Let's just get this she, out of she, <laughs> she certainly comes across as, as kind of a, a, what was perhaps at the time the, the stereotypical, you know, mm. uh, butch lesbian yeah. uh, type. And um, certainly whether the, whether the, it, how much of it is genuine or not, uh, certainly in that time frame, if you were um, within somewhere like the police force, you were either, you know, I think you were either seen as being somebody who was just wheeled out whenever there was a need for sort of somebody to go and speak to a woman mm. about something over, or um, if you wanted to be taken seriously as um, as an officer, then um, you needed to actually, you know, be more manly. Yeah. And... Um, which whatever the motivation behind this character is, it certainly turns out that um, Michael Craig's, Craig's character um, knows more about feminine underwear um, than she does. Um, which you know, it, it, again, that's just left without actually answer. He, he he sort of just pushes aside, sort of you know, not not to ask that. But um, who knows? Maybe that's that's one of his secrets. <laughs> Her reaction is just priceless here. It's one of the very few light moments in this movie because there is there isn't any light moments at all really in this film. Um, and I've just suddenly realised you talking about the, the role of women in the police force around about this time. This is the same year as Carry On Constable as well, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly the same year. Just imagine elsewhere in that police station that's that's going on. <laughs> it's in James, um. it's a, yeah, 
James and Hattie Jakes, uh, Eric Barker, all those guys. Yeah. So back to the story. Meanwhile, Hazard and Leroy call on the Harris family. David lives with his father, mother, and sister Mildred, and Mildred's young twin daughters. Sapphire had visited the family on Saturday morning and told them that she was pregnant. The father agreed to a marriage, though it is clear that no one in the family was very happy with the situation. The family knew that Sapphire was coloured. According to the beat policeman Ted Harris, the father has a reputation as a bigot and a racist, as does the daughter. Hazard suspects that David killed the girl to protect his scholarship, but Leroy is inclined to believe his innocence. Let's dwell on this family. David's family. Bernard Miles, head of the household, doing one of those jobs that doesn't exist anymore. Sign writing, the painting on glass, those, those you know. A, a job that I studied and trained to do. Did you? Um, yeah, I, I, before I went into my route into graphic design, which yeah. is what I, I did for 10 years of my life, my first work, you know, mm. first 10 years of my working life, I, I studied lettering. Yeah. So I, I carved well, letters into Welsh slate and I did sign writing. I did um, calligraphy and heraldry. Um, and yes, there was only um, one place in the country that did that to a high level of, mm. of higher national diploma it was in, in fact and yes sign writing yes so I looked at that and thought oh I remember doing that with your extremely long bristled brush and yeah. you've got your, your 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 ball on the end of a stick which you know you're, you're, you're resting on and stuff yeah, yeah sign writing um, uh, now are, are lost art yes yeah you only ever see it in movies where someone gets the sack and they're scraping their name off their office door and having yes <laughs> that's the only time you ever normally see it and you saying about my love for looking at backgrounds and London locations and things like this, that the family home and his workshop is in this wonderful little courtyard, this old Victorian courtyard, just cobbled streets and stuff like that. Absolutely fantastic. And Bernard Miles, we've come across in a couple of movies, I think I'm going to have to ask you about this in a second in the Hall of Fame. It may have been the, um, the David Lee, Noel Coward war film. A couple of years before this, he was in the Hitchcock's um, The Man Who Knew Too Much with Brenda Banzi. They were the English couple in that, which is where a lot of people will know Bernard Miles. And I've spoke about Bernard Miles previously on the show because he had a great music hall career, had a very deep theatre background, um, very well-respected member of, of you know the British theatre community. Lots of like music hall songs. There's a lot of recordings, uh, recordings of him doing music hall numbers. But yes, yeah, certainly doesn't come across as a bigger, but the policeman has his suspicions, doesn't he? The local Bobby is not, you know, he's, he's very supportive at this point in the, in the plot. We think, you know, at the moment, he's not a suspect. At the moment, the, the main suspect still is, is David at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's a very reserved performance from uh, Bird and Miles. Mm. Again, pulling out a great portrayal of a character, but without having to be literally singing and dancing and shouting about yeah, it it's yeah. it's all in the subtleties with it yeah. and his guarded responses and that are also a little bit sort of defensive do actually tell tell their own story with regards to his attitude towards race and his feelings about sapphire and his and his son and the whole situation and protectiveness towards his son obviously as well and i think that that's again it 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 pushes across to you the same way that we, what we were saying about the, the facial expression before. Mm. You know, there's look in his eye where he's, he's the caution with his responses to when he's being asked questions, but then also the bits where he flares a little bit with his 
um, defensiveness. Yep. That that portrays great uh, as a, and shows the quality of the acting in, oh. in Bernard Miles, especially. I mean, he's, you say he's got this background of, of music hall and stuff, so to go to play in such subtlety um, from what would, you know, on a, a music hall stage would actually have had to have been you know, very projecting, shows, again, that he's, he's very accomplished as an actor. Yeah, the more I see a Bernard Miles, the, the more I want to sort of seek out some of his other stuff because he's, he's just one of those faces that you will see him he will crop up I mean we're going to very very soon we'll go to the Hall of Fame because we're talking about actors and more of the cast as we're going on here another member of the family is is David's sister played by Yvonne Mitchell now if it wasn't for um, the deep love and affection that we have for Marianne Stone and the Hickson I think Yvonne Mitchell would be up there with them again the more I see of her Yield to the Night being a superb example of her work, and Tiger Bay that we mentioned earlier. She's the the victim, isn't she, in Tiger Bay? She is, yeah. Yeah, Horse yeah, Bushel um, kills her, doesn't he? She's um, the girlfriend. And, and Anna, Anya? Yes, like Anna, yeah. she's the Polish girlfriend, isn't mm. she? The more I'm growing towards her, I think I need to seek out some more Yvonne Mitchell stuff. So, talking about the cast and all that lot, could you get the keys to the Village Hall of Fame and open up the doors and tell us who's inducted and who's who's reappeared, please, mate. You'll be inserting a sound effect there. Um, <laughs> I could do, couldn't I? <laughs> we need something for the Hall of Fame. Should be, yeah, jingle or something. Yeah. But anyway... We do have new inductees, which is is Wonderful. fantastic. Always good to hear. Uh, mm. uh, Michael Craig being one of them. Oh, brilliant! So um, yield to the night is that one? Yeah. Um, and yield to the night, yeah. along with Sapphire. So it's great to get him in. Mm-hmm. As you say, I think he hasn't always been appreciated for his performances and some of his. Perform- I think there are a couple of films where he's a bit more wooden, like you've said. Good job, I took um, back what I said. Yeah. And um, <laughs> but he's if you look at his his full filmography you can see that there is more oh, to him and that he, you know, he, 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 was, he does have that maybe he was just badly directed he, or, he was um, a front runner for James Bond he was yes. one, wasn't he he was one of the very first people screen tested and considered I believe wasn't he yeah he was yeah mm. so along with Christopher Lee I believe was in the running as well um, Christopher Lee is so, excellent uh, he's excellent in everything basically. it's just generally excellent uh, but Bernard Miles is the other inductor hey, okay. um, Heavens Above and In Which We Serve ah, it was In Which We Serve not Above Us The Waves that was it I couldn't yeah. remember the title of it and Heavens Above so, uh, yeah <laughs> so and the um, the other new inductee is John Richardson he just was playing one of the students in this so not anybody notable oh right the table in the coffee bar one of those um, guys yeah yeah, but he was previously in Night to Remember and um, Legal Gentleman oh okay okay so so that's good and then we've got some fourth appearances um, in fact five of them okay Uh, here we go I'm ready so Grace Arnold Mm -hmm. who was um, Sapphire's landlady Lucy Griffiths um, who was uh, was was Johnny's landlady? She's the she's the the very small actress that appeared in Carry On films. There's a doctor, Carry On Hospital. She one. was yeah, she was in Carry On Nurse and Carry On Constable as far as as well as One Good Turn. So oh, and then this, so that's her yeah, fourth appearance. I'm sure 
I can picture her sitting in the hospital bed in Carry On Nurse. It was one of those. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And there's Philip Ray, mm. who um, previously won Good Turn, uh, Trouble in Stone, Night to Remember. He played um, a character called Mr. Young in this. Okay. And then there was uh, Basil uh, Dignam, who um, has played the Doctor, who has previously been in Carry On Sergeant, uh, Heavens Above, and Ten Rillington Place Ooh. that we've had. So, um, and then we've got one fifth appearance um, from somebody called George Curtis. Yeah. Um, who was one of the policemen. As you say, it's usually these background characters. I can't um, picture them at all. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, the other fourth one. Sorry, mm-hmm. there was there was five um, that were making their fourth appearance. The other fourth one was Desmond, Desmond Llewellyn that we've already mentioned. Brilliant. Um, I was going to say, Doctor, yeah. Doctor No, Night to Remember, um, from Russia We Love. Um, and this... So yeah, he's yeah. gonna he's gonna rapidly climb up the list as well. Yeah. Desmond Llewellyn, um, be Bond movies from now on, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, he's a fifth appearance. What am I talking about? Mm. Fifth, he's one of the fifth appearances. Two fifth appearances is him, and then uh, George Curtis is the other fifth appearance. Okay. Because, um, and he was just a policeman, and previously in Troubling Star, Night to Remember, The Rebel, Heavens Above. You know, so, but certainly, you know, as you say, Yvonne Mitchell is on the cusp. Um, as we know, and, and quite rightly so, though she didn't do as many films as, as maybe would would have liked. Mm. Uh, she was, she did less than forty films, in, if my memory serves me correctly. Okay. Um, which you know she's got more of a name to her, despite doing less films. Outstanding performances and everything I've seen her in, mm-hmm. and certainly got a, a, a enchanting look to her as well that just captures you as well. To, yeah. to on screen, your eyes are, are drawn to her. Not in a stead in the scene way, but you just sort of, you know, she, she makes you curious more about mm. in scenes. We'll cover so, Tiger um, Bay so at yeah. some point, mate. Actually, I, th- I think we need to do that in some depth, Tiger Bay, because I told you the other day I watched it. Yes. Last week, week before, and I thought I'd seen it, and I couldn't remember anything about it. And apart from like this, obviously fantastic performance from Hayley Mills that everybody talks about. Horse Bushel was great in it. Evon, you know, was was great in it. John Mills, fantastic. It's a very good movie that is also sort of considered a precursor to the kitchen sink stuff, as we discussed earlier. So absolutely, yeah. And I mean, the, you know, the reference just to to that in the same bracket as the the Lambeth Boys and, and mm. stuff. I mean, um, I know I've been working through. Um, some of the other ones that were on the list, the ones that you were mentioning oh, in yes. the yeah. in the, the mini documentary. Tiger Bay, I think I had seen before, but I watched it again, and like you, I was going, well, I do kind of remember it, but mm, I don't. On the other hand, it's one of whereas, those, yeah. whereas Lambeth Boys and stuff I hadn't seen, but but Tiger Bay, yeah, I do think you're right that it might it it, it does warrant further investigation mm. by um, certainly by the audience. There's a few that you know in the lead up to where we're going with this little series that we haven't covered, but mentioned in the mini documentaries. I mean. We haven't done Brighton Rock, but that's pivotal to what we're talking about. The Blue Lamp, dare I say. <laughs> listeners, yeah. will, listeners will be aware we have recorded an episode on The Blue Lamp that's disappeared into the ether. But, you know, we I mentioned You're going to find it in your box room, won't you? I will do what I'm decorating this week while I'm off. It's... <laughs> But I think that was brought up in the run-up to Pool of London or something like that, wasn't it? You know, and and we said we're not overlooking the movies. We're focusing on certain ones before we get to Room at the Top and the, the Kitchen Sink stuff. 
and it was difficult for me to pinpoint down. I think I said to you I had a hundred movies potentially. That I wanted uh, yeah, to it could be its own podcast in itself, just mm. going through that genre of films. Yeah, in order that we can actually get to the um, the main body of the the ones that are the ones that are the focal point. Yeah, we've had to skip and jump through some of the earlier precursor ones mm. or the ones that were set in the genre yeah. as a field and that's not in any I mean some of them have interesting points to them but might not be as great a films but there are certainly ones like Tiger Bear that um, warrant as uh, warrant people actually visiting and it's quite it's entirely possible that um, in the fullness of time, in you know, in ten years' time, when we're still doing this, we'll have revisited <laughs> by then. Um, Hopefully, before then. But yeah, just because they've been skipped over doesn't, in any way, uh, diminish that they they're worth going and watch. Uh, particularly the likes of Tiger Bear. Yeah, as, as you're saying, that you know, some of the people that are, that are the frequent frequent go-to cast, there is a little bit of an element that Basil Dearden had a troop of people. That you, you, you know goes back to and includes um, a number of times. I know it gets talked about with other actors like Scorsese and, mm. and Alfred Hitchcock and stuff, but you know Basil Durden seems to. There's a quite a few that frequently appear in in his filmography. Yeah, not quite uh, a stock company, but certainly frequent appearances. I mean, this is two out of two for Earl Cameron for us. You know. Yeah. But then, you know, if you were making a film and you had the opportunity to put Earl Cameron in it, you would. I'd put him in there now. 102 years old, whatever he is now, 103. I'd I'd cast him now in anything. Absolutely anything. Him and Murray Melvin. The ultimate cast list for me, those two. Imagine that. A modern day kitchen sink drama with with Earl Cameron and Murray Melvin. Um, (laughs) Back to the plot. Back to the plot. Thank you for the Hall of Fame and all your work on that, by the way, mate. I don't thank you enough for all the all the effort you put in because it's um there's a lot of names, especially this week. As I said, there was twenty uncredited actors and actresses on IMDb. So thanks, mate, for that. Let's have a look. At what point did we did it go over the the bit where the where they're discussing with the doctor and, and it comes up about being able to tell that she was um, mixed race? Was it the doctor that says that, or was it somebody? And, in and the then club? It, yeah, and then he's the, the doctor. No, it's it's not him. Who, oh, who the doctor, no. not, not, not the, doctor, the doctor. The is one that puts puts him down. Oh, the, the Michael, Craig Michael Craig character when he when he's saying, "Oh, well, you can always tell, can't you?" Yes. He's saying, "Well, you know." about the big feet of policemen, which becomes a bit of a, a, a running gag for it about policemen's feet. Yeah. Um, but I can't remember where that, whether that happens before that, or after, but I mean, it's not massively important. I but, think that comes so, up immediately after they find out that she was of mixed, mixed parentage. Hmm. Um, I'm getting confused. There's three doctors in this movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's the yeah. doctor at the beginning, which is Richard Vernon, the doctor that you're referring to. Um, who's just gone into the Hall of Fame. And, of course, Earl Cameron's a doctor himself. Earl Cameron's as well. a doctor in it as well, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, that happens, I think, pretty much after they first discover from Earl Cameron about the parents. Before, Certainly before they go to the nightclub, I'm sure it is, which is coming up now. Before we get to the nightclub, Earl Cameron, Dr Robbins, 
wants to see the spot where his sister was murdered and to visit her boarding room. But the landlady of the lodgings will not let him into the house because of his colour for fear that she would lose potential lodgers. Now, she turns him away immediately at the door until he explains that he was Sapphire's brother. And there's this marvellous scene here where the landlady sort of quizzes Sapphire's friend, asking her, right? And she says, did you know that she was coloured? And the landlady spouts off her usual racist views. And the friend said, right, well, you've got one less lodger. I'm leaving as well now. And the landlady comes back with something very insightful, a very insightful comment. And she asks the girl if she's told her parents that she knew that Sapphire was black, in which the girl says no. It's just coming across from all angles here. Which is that's it. That yeah, the she's you know she took her home for the weekend and didn't mention it to her parents and the the layers of racism. Yeah, and it might not have been implied that the girl herself was was racist, but certainly um, that was implying that her her parents may have been. Could have, yeah, could have, could have been. Mm. In which case, you know, having this moral outrage to go and walk out um, of the lodgings is hypocritical, really. And the landlady, you know, her justification doesn't actually come across really too much of being um, actually racist herself. It's a, it's a, a, a pragmatic economic. That's basically um, it is her livelihood. Yeah. 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 Saying that you know, if, if she had a reputation for for letting to black students, then um, she wouldn't get the, the white students, and she gets more money for white students than she would for black students, yeah. and. I mean, the the whole, actually, this reminds me, there's a a throwaway comment from Earl Cameron's character just in in a previous scene when uh, they're talking about, when they're talking to him and about contacting him. Mm. And he um, says about the hotel that he's um, staying in. And he's, he's, I think the phrase he uses, um, they take us there. They take us there or they'll let me in there or something, he says, doesn't he? Yeah, and it's just sort of going... That, that's a complete throwaway comment, which I suppose at the time, maybe audience at the time wouldn't have thought anything of it because they were just used to there being well, um, it's the places that wouldn't accept black yeah. people. You know, the, the no no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. You know, no, no dogs. Yeah. But that, to us on, on a, a modern modern hearing, I mean, you know, we've got the laws now to stop that kind of thing, thankfully. Yeah. But before then, there wasn't anything to stop. No. Um, businesses from, from having that standpoint. But that's a throwaway thing that's in there and it just... I this think, time around, chimed to him more than, than previously that that was a, a throwaway comment, which mm. is great subtlety in there, but still thinking, well, yes, he's, you know, there's only certain hotels he could have stayed in. Yeah. Same here, because I said at the beginning, didn't I, that despite this being 60 years old and me seeing it a couple of times, there were a couple of things that hit home with me. And it was that, because as you say, if you weren't paying attention, you would not have picked that up. And it was literally as he's going out the door of the police station, isn't it? He? he just says, OK, they take me there. Brilliant. Superb. I'm going to have to check who the screenwriter is on this as well, because uh, there's some great dialogue. We've got more coming up in a minute. I mean, we're getting getting to the nightclub scene now, which is where things sort of start hotting up a wee bit now. I mean, we've still got only one suspect at this point, which is still the boyfriend at the moment. You know, we've got no other reason to suspect anybody else. But then we get to the next scene where Hazard and Leroy visit an upmarket club for young well-to-do black people. Sapphire used to frequent the club with an ex-boyfriend Paul Slade however Sapphire preferred the racier environment of the Tulip Club where she began dating a big man called Johnny 
Many of the witnesses questioned by Hazard and Leroyd resent Sapphire, either because she passed for white or because she's discovered to be coloured. There's that scene, isn't there, where they go into the bar and Nigel Patrick, you know, while they're waiting to sort of question people, he orders two beers. Yeah. And he, he says, like, you know, 10 shillings. And he's like, no, 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 four shillings. Or something like that. He argues with him the fact that, you know, he's trying to try to extort, extort money out of him. Fact, yeah, and he throws, he throws four shillings on the, <laughs> the, on the counter and yeah. tells him to keep the change. Keep the change. Um, <laughs> going, yeah, it's not even worth that, but still I'm, you know, I'm meeting you part way. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, out. there's a girl mm. at the bar next to him who um, obviously has got light-coloured hair and, and a lighter skin in her way. You're seeing some other people around the club who are sort of lighter skinned and perhaps could themselves yep. have passed for for white, yet they're still there in in the club, and it's kind of making making that point that Sapphire chose to leave it, whereas there's other people who could but chose not to, yep. and that's why there's the ill feeling rather than it just being that she is she is mixed race and them taken against her purely for that fact. It's how she responded to that, to being mixed race and being able to pass. That's it. Um, We're seeing the judgment, uh, the prejudice towards her by the black community yeah. because her ability to pass herself off as white. Absolutely fantastic scene. This is just really hotting up at this point. We're about halfway through and it's still the police procedural stuff going on as well. They're trying to find the multiple jo- among the one Johnny amongst the multiple Johnnies for one yeah, of the better phrase. Because at one point, didn't they say that well there's there's Johnny two legs over there and there's there's Johnny fingers in, in that corner and this is Johnny yeah. Smith and all this like Johnny Tiger Johnny and one with T- a yeah with a jump jump he's got the sweater on with a tiger on it and it's Johnny Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> what does he always wear that jumper? So basically they just know it's a big man called Johnny, don't they? I think that's all. Yeah. It is. And this photo that they found as well has got has got somebody cut off, hasn't it? There was a photo taken of Sapphire yeah. dancing with somebody that we believe is Johnny, but you can't see who this man is. So continuing with the sort of questioning and stuff like that, we go back to the Harris's home. And Mrs. Harris questions her son closely, but he refuses to say where he was on Saturday night. So your suspicion towards David is increasing at this point. Now, one mother has her suspicions. Father and sister defend David. The whole family are fearful of the social consequences should their association with Sapphire be made public. That's the crux of it. It is the the whole, there goes the neighbourhood, the whole social standing thing is going to crumble around them. We get lots of suspicions here from the police. Did the father kill Sapphire? They start investigating the fact that his van is only like four foot wide, so it could have got onto Hampstead Heath. David's alibi is not holding up at this point. Could the sister be involved somewhere along the line without every line of inquiry? It's being pursued by the police. And like I said, it's, this is the Agatha Christie bit I mentioned earlier. You suspect everybody and nobody. Everybody had a motive and opportunity. Yeah. And, and you're thinking, okay, where's it going to go? Is it somebody in this family? Is it somebody in the club? Is it somebody we haven't met yet? And and this is what we said was the sheer cleverness of this movie is the fact that you've got a fantastic... Without all this race element going on, in, in well, not even in the background, but without all this race element to the movie, this would stand alone as a great police procedure anyway. Yes, it does. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's absolutely true. It's set against a backdrop backdrop of the racism, but that's n- not overshadowing the fact that the you know, the crime element of it is, and the investigation is incredibly well done and, and incredibly well 
written as well. So it shouldn't be shouldn't be seen as being a one trick pony. No. We'll just we'll just finish sort of the plot just coming up in the next couple of scenes because I think pretty much after this we're gonna head down the territory of we're gonna spoil it for you if we go too further down too much further down the line. But there's a pursuit through the streets where Johnny is refused help or shelter and battered by racist teddy boys. The police eventually call the Johnny. Johnny's re- well. Let's let's stop there. There's this chase scene. Yeah, I don't go any further on this. No, this again. The the, the chase scene with the teddy boys beating up the, the the Johnny again. I mean, you know, straight away the the, um, the Brixton riots from the previous year, which was probably round about the time this would be made. To be honest, it was. Um, yeah. You know, that was teddy boys against against the Afro-Caribbean immigrants. And so yeah. that would have been quite raw and visceral to people who you know, might have been viewing this oh, topical, um, based on what had happened six so, months before that in, so, in real life this scene. Yep, so topical. Without giving too much away, because they find some evidence like, you know, a flick knife and things that put him in, in the forefront of suspicion. But I just want to mention that Johnny, when he's being questions said that he'd had a fight with a character called johnny big uh, sorry horace big cigar yes now i just want to mention horace big cigar it's robert adams now we've been extolling the virtues of earl cameron for on this show for quite a while we love earl cameron but it was actors like robert adams that sort of opened the door for black actors and actresses back in the 40s and the 50s he was the guy that could always be found playing that usual role in British movies of the 40s, you know, Nubian slave in Caesar and Cleopatra or yeah. African tribal leader or jungle guide in, say, something like King Solomon's Mines. He was always... Yeah. Every, every line involved the word boss or yeah, master. that's him. Yeah. That's Robert Adams. But he formed a group of actors. I think they were called something like the Negro Repertory Arts Company and it was one of the first black theatre companies in this country. And most importantly, he was the first black actor to be given a major role in a British TV production of a Shakespeare play. It wasn't quite Othello. He was the Prince of Morocco in their version of The Merchant of Venice, around about 1947, just after the war. Unheard of at the time, because I'm assuming that up to that point, it would have been white actors in blackface, you know, Laurence Olivier famously in Othello and all those guys. He went on to become this country's leading male black actor with with Earl Cameron snapping at his heels, basically. And he sadly passed away not long after Sapphire, I think in about 63, 64, I think he died. But it's good to see that his talent had been recognised by Dearden and it's not just, like you said, a character that says boss every other word. He's fant- I, liked, I liked his character, Horace Big Cigar, in this. It just added a bit of... I'm going to say colour. It added a bit of colour to this movie because it was just like, what a great character, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's one of the ones where they're, they're you know, they're accentuating uh, and it's the, char- it's the character themselves accentuating their, their reaction towards yes, the white policeman rather than it mm. being um, written, the, the writer having an accentuated um, sort of view of, of, of black people. It's, it's, the the way the which the 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 that character is interacting with other black people as opposed to how they interact with they perform a, a role almost when they're talking to the white people because they need to do to make them feel more comfortable and superior because if they start feeling that they are on equal footing with them they'll actually start you know particularly if they're already displaying any racist tendencies you've got to act, you've got to take this 
simple subservient role and refer to them as boss so yeah. that they know that you're, you're not actually um, challenging them, um, which is a safe position to be in. But absolutely, you know, is a face that you recognise yeah. um, from a number of performances. Mind you, Johnny Fiddle, um, Harry Bird, yeah. um, uh, you know, um, immediately, um, you know, when I first saw it the, the other year, I immediately went, I'm sure that's the bus driver from um, Italian Job. Um, is, he, is that him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's his fault that they drive off the cl- off the cliff and lose oh, all those minis, um, oh. which is heartbreaking for me. Well yeah, spotted, so, um, well spotted, excellent. It's, um, but yeah, it certainly was that you know, as we know, history of cinema and, and theatre in in the UK. There was you know, took quite a while before um, Othello was actually played by a black person <laughs> rather than be played by somebody a white person blacking up. Yes, but yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so you, you had some. You know some patterns, which obviously one of them uh, or two of them are, pre- are prevalent in this film. Yeah, and it's certainly good to recognise that the path they trod, the others that then followed, um, has given us some you know fantastic talent. Now that we we've, we've got Idris Elba and others like that, the um, Adrian Lester and such like that, you know great acting talent. Now that we just take for granted is is part of you know, great British actors that we have, that that had to be a, a path that was forged um, by these luminaries that unfortunately are a little bit forgotten. Yeah, and, and like we said, 59, we're on on the verge of massive changes, not just socially, but in the world of cinema and attitudes. Like I said, the permissive society is only a couple of years away. Things are getting more realistic. This is the whole point of this little series we're doing. It's the whole British New Wave realism movement. And it's... it's I'm a, trying to say the carry-on films aren't realistic. Depends what one you watch, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to read through this plot anymore because we're getting to the point now where... If we start talking at any length, we're going to start spoiling it, I think. just let, Let's just say sort of alibis crack, fingers are pointed in all directions from now on, uh, the pace hots up a bit, the police procedural bit really kicks in at this point, and without revealing anything at all, please, if you haven't seen this movie, go and watch it, because it, it, it's just leading up to this last five, ten minutes where you'll go, oh my God fantastic that's all that's all we're going to say so we can't say any more than that can we really yeah it's it's great because you know whether you end up finding out it's the person you suspected it to be or whether you find out it's somebody completely different whichever mm-hmm. camp you actually sit in with regards to to that at the within the last five minutes of the of finding out who it is you'll still have been left not certain um yeah. up until that point oh, because yeah. they, they do um <laughs> give you so many not misdirections as such, but they give you so many possibilities. Yeah. Um, Good way of putting it, that, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and that, and that is one of the beauties of this film. There's a number of, of beautiful elements to this film, in my opinion, but that's one of the, the great ones whereby um, it does keep you engaged to wonder about who's actually committed the crime <laughs> and, and why as well to some, I mean and racism seem, and the hatred of her for one reason or another seems to be established part way through as the, as the motive in general but specifically what you know why they they hated her on the basis of race whether it was um, because she was passing herself off as white and that was from one side of the community or the other 
it's it's open to question right up until the end and that's um it's a hugely engaging film in my opinion yeah we've got a dozen suspects and a dozen alibis that keep you guessing all the way through and, and, and changing your guesses all the way through as we said as well in summary, for me, mate, it's, it's no doubt this is an important movie. It's groundbreaking. Possibly the best of Dearden's work that we've covered so far. I think we'll struggle to find any better than this in his filmography. Love, I do think this is the, this is it's, it's the one, isn't it? For, for, for a number of reasons. Um, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with his other films, as we, uh, neither of us is. Um, that, you know, there's certainly different elements that, they, that he picks up upon as the background, re, you know, to it, and this happens to be the the one on on race, really. Although there was an element of that in Pool of London, but um, this is, you know, the, if every director really has one masterpiece, um, this is it. Where all the different elements that he had been perfecting and that he mm-hmm. subsequently had in his films, this is where all the elements come together oh, in in, so. in mm-hmm. the, the best jigsaw possible and and just work in complete balance to yeah. create what is as you say is probably the best film of his career oh, i think so i mean it's also a lovely little lead up to the kitchen sink stuff which is yeah. not far away now because the next movie in the series is the one that really kickstarts the genre of the angry young, angry young man stuff from the same year in fact the next two are 1959 so this is really there this is right with them they're probably the same summer they all got released and the next two reviews that obviously we're going to be looking at are Look Back in Anger and Room at the Top. Five-star movie for me, 10 out of 10, whatever you want to look at it, whatever way. Your unique rating system, mate, I know where this is going. Yeah, my, yeah, it would be no surprise to anybody the way I, I ranked from the very first when I started talking about this at the beginning of the review. Yeah, this is one that I think is really essential for people to go and hunt, hunt down and see. Um, even if you don't, um, live in the UK. It still, I think, is is important to to go see, and not just because the the current climate of different things that are going on, um, which just is is coincidental, considering this was um, on the docket for us to to get yes, to in a way. But um, it was penciled in months ago. Was this? So, but I do think it's very important for people to to understand history being portrayed in this and and the cultural mores and values and um norms that were there that thankfully aren't but beyond all of that to be perfectly honest this is just a great film that's mm-hmm. just uh, it's got you know great performances great plot and the the writer um can't remember her name janet i want to say janet green but it might mm. not be but um you know there's other films in in her um docket that are, are not as well known as such, but um, victim she did after this with that was um, it, Bogart, um, which we, we'll get to at some point. Yep. Um, and she is responsible for the plot in this film and you know deserves great oh, um, yeah. praise for it yeah. because she obviously um, had talent. Um, but the film as a, as a whole is just a combination of, of lots of um, great elements coming together to be um, even better than the sum of their great parts. Yes. And, it is a fantastic film that people should go out the way to to see, um, and you may have to pick the right mood to watch it in. But other than that, I'll you know look, watch it because it's it's well worth your time, especially if it's only been an hour and a half. I mean, uh, I guarantee if you've seen it once, you will go back to it very soon as well. 
oh yes it's, it's, it's one that's worth it even even when you know the outcome it, it, there's so many layers to this as, as we've said in the last sort of hour and a half you'll just find something new on every watch okay look it's sapphire from 1959 as we say when we pick up the next of the British New Wave movies. We've completed our look at the precursors now. That is it. You know, we're there. That is, yeah. We're, we're into yeah. the core 10. But this being the real Britannia, we, we've added a few because <laughs> the core 10 kitchen sink, you know, what's generally regarded as the kitchen sink dramas, also had other movies running in tandem with them, running alongside that were influenced by the genre. So... You know, amongst the famous ones, we're going to chuck in Sparrows Can't Sing and a couple of other different ones, you know. And we're going to hit John Osborne, Lindy Anderson, all those guys we've been waiting to talk about for over a year now, mate. It's on the horizon. They're there. So in the meantime, our next review is going to be decided by my good friend up in York up there. So let's take a short break. We'll be back with what we're watching next time. All my loyal, trusty and devoted subjects throughout the Chilton Hills, regions adjacent and other denominations, good afternoon. <laughs> I've just been across to see old Harry Partridge in the cottage hospital. He cut his leg on a bit of old iron and that turned sceptical. <clears throat> I says to him, how are you feeling, Harry? He says, well, he says, I'm better than what I was, he says, but I ain't as well as what I was before I was as bad as what I am now. <clears throat> Oh, you can tell he must have been pretty queer. Well, they had to give him the artificial interrogation, you know. <laughs> One thing, though, you'll see a lot of changes when he comes out because we've had the proper water fitted in since he's been away. Council water in pipes. But I don't care for it myself. Well, you don't, don't seem to be no strength in it. <laughs> you can hardly smell it. <laughs> give me a drop of my old well water every time. Wow. That was like a drop of gravy. <laughs> oh, uh, that's why they made me fill it in, you know. They reckon that was full of bacteriums and microphobes and minute animal organisations. <laughs> I says, get away. I says, there's only a few tadpoles, I says. I says, we depends on them to help us out with the meat ration. <laughs> well, this fella says it might be all right, he says, for bathing in his head, but ain't fit to drink. Well, the idea... I've never had a bath in my life. <laughs> Not that I know of, anyhow. I don't want one, neither. That's why I hope I never have to go into hospital. I've been private all my life, and I want to stay private. <laughs> I don't want a lot of young girls taking down my particulars. <laughs> I told this fella I'd never had a bath. He says, well, he says, whoever do you get the dirt off then? I says, when it's thick enough, it falls off. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, of course it has to be dry, we know. <laughs> wow, the idea. My old mother never bathed any of us, you know. She used to rub us all over with bacon fat and then sew us up in flannel for the winter. <laughs> Eleven of us lying on the kitchen table. We were sewed up round about Michaelmas and we wasn't unsewed till Lady Day. <laughs> she used to cut two armholes in this bit of flannel and put it on us like a little jacket and then sew us up the belly with red cotton, eleven of us lying on the kitchen table. <laughs> uh, and then her and my old dad used to do each other. Like, <laughs> uh, right, right. 
line on the kitchen table. Right? <laughs> Like, like when I went across to thin old Miss Piggott's onions out. She says to me, she says, you're filthy dirty. She says, you want a bath, she says. She says, you're dirtier than what old Tommy Fairchild is. So I says, well, I'm three years older than what he is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I gets about more, I says. She says, yes, she says, a rolling stone gathers no moss. I says, no, and a sitting in don't grow no feathers on her belly. <laughs> She says, how dare you talk to me like that? I says, if you spits in the fire, you must expect it to fizzle. <laughs> wow, the idea. I'd thin our onions out for if I had my way. <laughs> Riding round on that fat little pony of hers like a tom tit on a round of beef. <laughs> like when they had the new water closets fitted in, you know, across at Wigginton. They'd never seen anything like them in their lives before. They was washing their feet in them. <laughs> Pulling the chain to rinse them down. <laughs> and, and they couldn't make head or tail of these two lids, what come with them, you know. <laughs> they was putting a bit of looking glass in one and using the other one for a breadboard. <laughs> many of you know one of my favourite parts of this show is when my dear friend Stephen over there takes a look down the never ending list of British movies that he'd like to discuss he's never ending your list as well isn't it you're always yes, it keeps, yes it's expanding quicker than we're getting them recorded to be fair and we're recording them quite frequently well, we are but it's just getting more and more on your list but he was going to come up with something that often surprises me occasionally it's something I've not seen in a while and very often Stephen you'll find something I've not actually seen so between us we usually come up with some crackers some we adore some we wished could have been a little better but the conversation around them has always been wonderful so over to you mate what are we watching next time 
Um, I'm pretty sure it is something you have seen before. Mm-hmm. But um, we're sticking with a well. There's an element of crime to the, to to it, but maybe not in the same way as murder. Thankfully, um, it, it features two um, actors I know that you um, love to see in films. Uh, one of them being John Gregson, and, and the other one James Robertson Justice. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, which I, I know both of them. Um, it's also got Gordon Jackson in it, as a, just as an aside. And we're going back a little bit um, mm-hmm. in time, away from. Um, when Sapphire is recorded, and uh, we're going to, you know, a story of island life um, in whiskey galore. <laughs> Do you know what? I was struggling at first. I'm thinking, well, what could it be? Because then I suddenly thought John Gregson puts on that, that diabolical Scottish accent in this. Yes. I, I've watched it. I have seen it. Of course, I have seen it. Watched it at Christmas. I think it was the last time I saw it about six months ago. We, we can talk all about Mr. Robertson Justice and his dubious background and family yes, history. Yes, again, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a marvellous yeah. biography uh, on James Robertson Justice, which is a little bit pricey, even second-hand, but I may take the plunge and invest in that if I can, because I want to find out exactly what these stories are. We know rumours, don't we, about him and the, the taking off the Robertson Justice part of the name, and that there was any Scottish heritage there at all or not? But it's yeah, he he was a, a, a legend of his own making, really. <laughs> in that respect, he is he, he mythologicalised his own um, his own background, and to some extent, the, the the story is is you know is more interesting than what he was claiming to be, really. Oh yeah. And um, certainly, um, he was a big character in a number of senses. I think um, we love can him. be assured. Yeah, absolutely love him. And thank you for choosing something a little bit lighter than today's discussion. Well, no, I was, we yeah, it. I was thinking, we, you know, although it's crime, it's not murder. It's um, no, 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 no. More, this... more fun sense of, of it. And I thought, you know, obviously know a bit more about what we've got coming up as well as other films. And I thought. We'd, um, it was either going for an out-and-out comedy of, of some kind of um, Peter Sellers um, yeah. or some description, um, but I thought, we'll, we'll go an for ealing, this. An ealing. We haven't done that many ealings when we look at well, the comedy ealings we haven't, have we? I don't think we've done... Lady Colours and Man in a White Suit and stuff. Done. We haven't done, yeah. done that many. No, we um, really, it's... Um, it's quite yeah. limited, about time. considering, well, considering yeah. how prominent ealing were, but yeah. um, just dip our toes in, and I think um, oh, there's, there's quite a lot to be to be said um, about what um, Whiskey Law did to actually raise the profile of Avelin, yeah. um, particularly abroad. Yeah, yeah, we covered Passport to Pimlico and Lavender Hill Mob, I think, are the two so far out of 80. So that's good. That's a marvellous choice, mate. Brilliant. Thank you. That's it for another episode of Real Britannia. Stephen and I will be back next time. Don't forget take a listen to Britpop movies of a certain age as well guys if you fancy something similar but different to what we're doing here with Matt and Gavin we've got some guests lined up for some upcoming episodes we've got some cracking movies to discuss with them but in the meantime follow us on Twitter at Real Britannia Pod and if you fancy joining the Facebook group we'd love to see you there well, at least I will Stephen's not on Facebook are you mate um, no <laughs> safe everybody Stephen take care mate see you soon take care
good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir.